You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Packard Podcast. I am your host and guest panelist, JJ Leahy. Check us out online at packernet.com. Follow me on Twitter at JJ Leahy to stay up to date on all things Packers or to submit questions. Big thank you to everybody who did submit questions. Wow, I got a lot of responses in the last, oh gosh, 10 hours. Um, Facebook, Twitter, the Facebook group, just going nuts. At this point, you know, after, like I said, about 10 hours of these responses coming in, I have switched my feelings over from. I wish Ryan would come back so I have something to listen to myself over to I hope Ryan doesn't come back for a couple more days because I have a lot of content I still have to get through <laughs> from all your questions. Um, on that note, I killed Ryan. He's gone. He's murdered. He's not coming back. At least that is the uh, theory put forth in the Facebook group by Mr. Nathan. I really enjoyed reading through the thread because <laughs> there's a lot of... Um, suggestions for the show and I was surprised to see I think there were I think there were three different people I know for sure there were two I think there were three different people who asked me to do rants or complained that I don't rant like Ryan does and I got to be honest um, I'm not entirely sure I have the confidence to put a rant out there on the internet because <laughs> a big part of going on a rant is having enough ego to be ticked off at how stupid the people around you are. And while I certainly feel that on a day-to-day basis, you know, privately, I try not to vocalize it because, you know, it's not the greatest look. Some people, like Ryan, can really pull it off, and it's a lot of fun to listen to. Uh, The people want rants, though, and today is kind of the perfect day for that because I woke up in a pretty foul mood. It's definitely related to the fact that I was up till 2 a.m. recording yesterday's podcast. It's currently 1.25 in the afternoon my time, Um, so that will allow me to get to bed at a decent time today. i got a lot of topics that I really want to touch on, but since we are okay with doing a rant today, I'm going to go ahead and bring up the thing that I'm kind of ticked off about. Bears fans. The Bears are a pathetic, stupid, useless franchise that should not be in the NFL anymore. Whoa, where did that come from? I'm glad you asked. This dolt on Twitter. I mean, he's a Bears fan, so calling him a dolt is kind of redundant. I shouldn't have let him get under my skin, but I did. So I'm scrolling through Twitter, which is always a terrible decision when you're already not in a great mood, because Twitter is just the worst. And the tailgate show on Twitter. I guess it's a podcast. I've never listened to it. I I do follow them on Twitter, so I'm not sure when that started, but uh, clearly I've I've seen some tweets of theirs that I did like in the past, but I was following them. My mistake. When I see this retweet of theirs, the poverty up north is real. Well, whatever could that be about? 
It's an article on the Packers Wire saying Rashawn Gary was the best player on the field during Packers minicamp. This is something I was already planning on talking about on the show. I actually really didn't engage with, you know, the the poverty tweet. I thought that, you know, whatever, it's fine, just leave it. But there was a little discussion about Packer fans dunking on Gary, and I just brought up the Bears fan tweet, and I said, hey, look, at least the Bears are staying on message because they just consistently hate on anybody who's a Packer. However, the tailgate show decided to reply to me and say, when a young middling outside linebacker is the best player on the field, that's probably not super great for your prospects this season. Rashawn Gary was a top 10 disruptor in 2020, according to next gen stats. Now I get that you don't need to know that as a bears fan, but here are some names you should know. Zadarius Smith, Jair Alexander, Kenny Clark, Adrian Amos, Darnell Savage. Oh, you don't think that the Bears fans should know who Darnell Savage is yet? He intercepted uh, Mitchell Trubisky twice last year in one game. Here's Bears fans' logic, though. All those guys are on your defense. We're not even talking about the offense, just the defense. Those guys are all on defense. But since Rashawn Gary was apparently the player who looked the best in minicamp, that means all those other guys stink. Doesn't mean Rashawn looked absolutely freaking fantastic. And if you can't tell, Struggling a little bit to keep this G-rated. So look, since Bears fans really don't like numbers, let's do some numbers. The last time the Bears won back-to-back games against the Packers was in 2007. They swept the Packers, and then after that, in 2008, they split with the Packers. After that, loss-loss win, loss, 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 win, loss, 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 win, loss, 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 win, loss, 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 and now you get to current day. So if they happen to win their next matchup against the Packers, which is probably their best shot at doing so, since 2007, when they lost to Brett freaking Hundley, But oh yeah, you got a real shot against us if Jordan Love or Blake Bortles is starting. Because the rest of the roster is just trash. Never mind, they have the number one best left tackle in football. Last year they had the number one wide receiver in football. They had the number one cornerback in football. They had the number two safety in football. I'm literally only talking about guys who have already proven what they can do. I'm not talking about A.J. Dillon. I'm not talking about Aaron Jones, who, although he's extremely good, he did have a slight down year last year, so we're not mentioning him. You know why? Because we don't need to talk about Aaron Jones, because everybody else is good enough. You leave Aaron Jones off the list, and it's still a freaking fantastic roster, with or without Aaron Rodgers. Since the last time the Bears won back-to-back games, which, by the way, it was only back-to-back games, it was a streak of two against the Packers. Since then, the Packers have had streaks of two, Four, four, five, and six. Even in 2018, when the Packers were terrible and the Bears won the division and went to the playoffs and lost in the very first round, even in that year, they only split with the Packers. Cumulative point totals in that time. Chicago has scored 509 points. Green Bay has scored 729 points. The Packers, let me just point this out to you. The Packers are better. They were better last year on defense than the Bears were. And defense is the only thing that the Bears are even halfway good at. Don't believe me? Let's look at yardage. The Packers allowed 5,344 yards. The Bears allowed 5,519. 
205 yards more, which depending on what team you're playing, that's basically a full game worth of yards, at least passing yards. On a per game basis, that means the Packers were giving up 334 yards. The Bears were giving up 344 yards, 10 yards more per game all year long. Points scored by the other team. By the way, the Detroit Lions come in dead last last year with 519 points allowed. The Chicago Bears allowed 370 points. The Packers, thankfully, allowed just one less than that, 369. That was really close. I think you look at one other, one more field goal, and the Packers can't brag about this uh, over the Bears, but we beat the Bears in points allowed. Both teams tied at 18 takeaways on the season. Now, I'm, I'm being honest with you. I'm going to show you the categories in which the Bears did better. For example, the Bears recovered eight fumbles. The Packers only recovered seven fumbles. The Packers allowed 332 first downs. The Bears allowed 331. So again, they beat the Packers by literally one first down. However, the Packers only allowed 346 completions. The Bears allowed 350. The Packers allowed 23 passing touchdowns to opposing teams. The Bears allowed 28. The Packers defense racked up 11 interceptions. The Bears defense racked up 10. Since we are talking about Rashawn Gary, the Green Bay Packers racked up 41 sacks on the season. Take a wild guess how many you think the Bears got. 35. Now, if you look at pressure percentage, the Packers generated a pretty pathetic 21.1% on the season. Um, That's not great. However, the Bears were not far behind at 22.4%, so 0.9% difference. And then if you look at hurry percentage, the Packers generated 8.1%. The Bears were 8.0. Oh, but Mike Pettin was horrible. What a terrible defensive coordinator he was. I'm still a little bit salty about all the hate that Mike Pettin got. Look, he's gone. It's fine. It's settled. Matt LaFleur agrees that Mike Pettin should not have been the defensive coordinator anymore. But I would just like everybody listening to ask yourself, do these numbers match up with what you were expecting? Did you think that the Packers were going to be beating the Bears in nearly every defensive category? Now, I get it. The Chicago Bears offense is and always has been a waste of time. I get it. I understand not trying to invest in that. But letting the defense erode to the point where it's worse than the Packers defense? I'm sorry. I don't care if you trot out Justin Fields, Andy Dalton, or Nick Foles. I am not scared of the Chicago Bears. They are a pointless waste of time. I am much more afraid of playing the Detroit Lions than I am the Chicago Bears. They are bottom feeders, and they are going to stay bottom feeders. But hey, consolation prize. The NFL literally invented a seventh seed in the playoffs to get you in as a wild card so you can get blown out in the Nickelodeon Bowl by a decrepit Drew Brees and Taysom Hill. By the way, why don't we take a look at that article that we've been arguing about this entire time and see what it was that was actually said about Rashawn Gary other than just the headline, shall we? That should be fun and educational. This is written by Zach Cruz over at Packers Wire. Matt LaFleur is confident he'll be a big-time player. Zadarius Smith thinks he'll have a dominant season. Green Bay Packers outside linebacker Rashawn Gary, who emerged as a highly disruptive rusher over the second half of his second season, has the look of a truly ascending player entering year three. His performance during the off-season workout program certainly didn't damper any of the excitement. Bill Huber of Sports Illustrated said Gary, the 12th overall pick in the 2019 draft, was the best player on the field during the three days of mandatory minicamp open to the media earlier this month. 
Quote, with the obvious caveat that these practices aren't held in pads and are non-contact, the best player on the field the past three days was third-year outside linebacker Rashawn Gary. There were times during the 2020 season that Gary looked like the best Packers defender on the field. He delivered seven pressures, including a sack, during a win over the Jaguars in Week 10, over a three-game stretch featuring the final two regular season games and the Packers' divisional round win over the LA Rams. Gary produced 14 pressures, nine stops, and earned himself an elite grade from Pro Football Focus in two of the three games. Of course, the work that we've seen here is in shorts and helmets during OTAs, and minicamp can be deceptive, and Gary is far from a finished product. The Packers also have two veteran edge rushers on the roster in Zedaria Smith and Preston Smith, potentially blocking Gary from being a true full-time player in 2021. But all the seasons are pointing to a player ready to make another jump in his third season. And this is the article that has Bears fans on Twitter rejoicing, proclaiming the end of the Packers, and Ding Dong the Tailgate Show on Twitter had the audacity to go out and tweet out to his followers after I retweeted him. Oh boy, the Packer burner accounts are stirred up for us now. Goot294055 and Season 295035 are coming for us. Translation, I tweeted something stupid and I don't like getting called out for it. Sit down, shut up, your team sucks. So, Brian and Kyle in the Packernet Podcast Facebook group, you got what you asked for. Probably should not have asked me to go on a rant. This is what you get. You have nobody to blame but yourselves. Time for an ad break. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. All right, we like I said, we have a lot of questions to get through, and the order I'm going to do this in is I'm going to hit the ones that I think I'm most likely to forget about first and save the other ones for later, especially the later ones are kind of the ones that require a little more research and numbers. And start off with Jason. I've seen a couple of re- reports of Kenny Clark moving around the defensive line and not just playing a straight nose tackle position in recent camps possible upsides and downsides, and just general thoughts on the idea of him being somewhere else on the D-line. Well, I touched on this real briefly the other day. Kenny lost a lot of weight. He has slimmed down. He looks a lot more like a D-end. I 
cannot recall any time where that has ever been a bad thing in the NFL. Um, you frequently will hear about guys coming back, uh, having bulked up and put on more muscle, and you're supposed to be excited about that, and then they end up sucking. Never heard of a guy losing weight and coming back and being worse. I went through all the tweets during voluntary OTAs and mandatory minicamp that mentioned Kenny Clark, and I cannot find any instances of him lining up anywhere other than uh, tackle. So do we have any proof that he's going to do that? Not really outside of comments that he made on um, uh, some show that Cheesehead TV was running during the draft where he did mention that uh, I think uh, Joe Barry had told Kenny that he was kind of interested in moving him around this year. Maybe that was Jerry Montgomery, the defensive line coach. Kenny Clark did allude to it, but in terms of seeing that in any practices, we have not seen it yet. I'm completely in favor of it. I would like to see him moving around. Kevin asks, based on last year's roster, who will this year's draft class push off the roster, assuming the rookies make it? I think we probably can assume that the rookies will all make it. So... Uh, let's start with offensive line. So we have Josh Myers, Cole Van Lannan, and Royce Newman are... Actually, I should clarify. I think all of the drafted rookies will make it. We have a bunch of undrafted guys as well, including some undrafted um, linemen. Looking at the linemen we have on the roster right now, the annoying thing about Packers.com is that they they group some positions together and then others they don't. And like Josh Myers is just off by himself. It just says center slash guard, even though I think they only intend to play him at center. Everybody else on the roster, they're all grouped up nicely except for offensive line. So going through the guards here, Ben Braden, I think, will make the roster. Elton Jenkins will. I don't think Zach Johnson will. He was on the team last year. You are forgiven if you don't remember who he is. Lucas Patrick, I think, probably does not make the cut. He's just making a lot of money for a guy who just did not play real well last year, and we have so much more depth this year than we did last year. John Runyon, I think, makes it. Simon Stepniak might lose his job. I think he's probably safe. Um, I should go back. Here we go. I had a spreadsheet for a no-huddle episode where we were going through which offensive linemen we thought were locks to make the team. So David Bakhtiari, Elton Jenkins, Billy Turner, Royce Newman, Josh Myers, John Runyon, I think not Lucas Patrick. I don't think he's a lock. So behind those guys, I think Cole, Lannan, Cole Van Lannan does make it. I think Ben Braden does make it. So excluding the undrafted guys, here are the players who were on the team last year who I think maybe have a shot of not making it. We'll go from Simon Stepniak. I think probably has a decent chance of making it, but I certainly would not consider him a lock. Koi Kronk, way up in the air, probably does not make it. Zach Johnson probably doesn't make it. I don't know what the plan is with Yash Nijman. Like, seriously, the Packers will not cut him, but they also won't let him play. It's beyond annoying. Just move on from him already if you don't either play him or, or, or get him out of here. But he's not even our tackle number three right now. I think he's not even tackle number four. He's like our fifth tackle, so I don't understand the point of paying him. Uh, John Deason and Jacob Copper, those are both undrafted guys from this year. Jake Hansen, I think, is probably on pretty thin ice. 
So those are the offensive linemen that I think have a shot at losing their jobs this year. Wide receiver is the next um, camp that I think you're probably going to see some hits at. So guys who were here last year who maybe don't make it. Um, Equinemius is definitely the biggest name out of the bunch. I'm not predicting he gets cut, but I think I think he is the most likely of the guys who might get cut to get cut. Jawan Winfrey, we talked about yesterday. I know that people really like what he was doing in minicamp. I mean, every year we have these uh, freak wide receivers who do incredible things in training camp, in minicamp, at OTAs, and then do nothing in the regular season. And I would probably put Juwan Winfrey in that category. We'll see. I'm not going to write him off, but Reggie Bigleton, I kind of would be really surprised if he even makes the practice squad this year. Malik Taylor is a guy who might not make the 53 this year. He largely was on the roster last year because of his special teams contributions. And I think we're expecting Amari Rogers to really be a special teams guy. Plus you have uh, Kylan Hill and Shamar Jean Charles and Eric Stokes and Isaiah McDuffie all I'm sure are going to be expected to jump on special teams. So Malik Taylor, if he can't be, a bigger factor in the offense. There's a potential that he gets cut. Uh, Chris Blair, I think, was not on the roster last year. I think we signed him in December. So those are the only wide receivers. So EQ, Juwan Winfrey, Reggie Bigleton, Malik Taylor uh, that were on the team last year that I think probably might not make. I, I would say 50% or greater chance that they don't make the roster this year. Running back. Uh, this is probably it for Dexter Williams. Love him. I don't think he's going to beat out Kylan Hill or Patrick Taylor. I think he will very quickly go the direction of Mike Weber. At defensive line, it's just so thin there. You know, we drafted TJ Slayton. You're looking at probably moving on from like Willington Prevalon. That's probably the guy. Let's see. Anthony Rush is already gone. So Anthony Rush did lose his job to the rookies. So there's that. Uh, I think anybody else on the along the defensive line would be pretty surprising if they got cut. At linebacker, typically the Packers keep four linebackers every year. But a couple of years they kept five, and one year they kept three, but it's pretty much always four. So I think Kamal Martin is the only guy I would say is a for sure lock to make the team. I know Chris Barnes is a favorite of a lot of, a lot of people, but in looking at the needs of this defense... I think Chris Barnes really sticks out as one of the few guys who does not have the athletic ability to do the job. His intellectual understanding of the defense is great. Um, he's a, a pretty good um, captain of the defense. I think he plays well, but he just athletically, he just doesn't have it. So for that reason, I'm not putting him on the safe list. But I do think after Kamal Martin, um, I'm going to say Devondre Campbell probably makes the 53. He's probably pretty much a lock. And then... Chris Barnes is probably the next guy up after that, but I would say Chris Barnes, Ty Summers, and Oren Burks are all in kind of similar territory where they could make it, um, and their special teams contributions matter a lot. I would really like to move on from Oren Burks. I don't think they will. You also have rookie Isaiah McDuffie in the mix. He's probably making the roster, I would guess, he probably beats out 
uh, Ray Wilborn and probably Scooter Harris, who were on the team last year. I think they both lose their jobs. Because even at that point, you're looking at one, two, three, four, five, six linebackers. Two of those guys are not making the cut. Maybe we'll keep five linebackers. I kind of doubt it. I think we're keeping four. It's going to be Kamal Martin, Devondre Campbell, and then two of Chris Barnes, Ty Summers, Oren Burks, and Isaiah McDuffie. And I would think that since he's a uh, rookie sixth-round pick this year, Isaiah McDuffie is probably the safest out of that group. So we'll see. At outside linebacker, we did not draft anybody. At corner, we drafted two guys. Okay, this is an interesting one. So we typically keep six corners on the roster. Jair, Eric Stokes, I think those guys are for sure locks. I think Kevin King is also a lock to make the team. I would be really surprised if they move on from him. Chandon Sullivan, it sounds like they are. he's the first guy up for that star position, which is just a nickel DB. I think he makes the team. Shamar Jean Charles will make the team, which means you have um, roughly one more roster spot to give to Josh Jackson, KB on Ento, Kadar Holman, or Stanford Samuels. Just based off of my own observations, I'm probably giving the job to KB on Ento. However, Josh Jackson was a second round pick back in 2018. He definitely has the upside. Um, Jerry Gray still speaks highly of him. We'll see. Stanford Samuels and Kadar Holman. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think they're going to make, it. I think write those two guys off. I think they probably lose their jobs to, uh, Stokes and Gene Charles in the safety room. Darnell Savage, Adrian Amos are both locks. I think Vernon Scott is probably a lock as well. Seventh round pick from last year. And he played pretty well. So you got Will Redmond, Innes Gaines, Henry Black, and then new addition to the roster would be Christian Uphoff. I don't think Christian Uphoff is beating out anybody except for Innes Gaines. So the normal number of safeties we keep is five, uh, four and a half. I think they'll keep five this year. So you got Darnell, Amos, Scott, probably Will Redmond, and Henry Black. Will Redmond maybe loses his job to one of Ines Gaines or Christian Uphoff. Um, in special teams, I don't think that any of our rookies are going to take a job there. I think Hunter Bradley will lose his job, but not to a rookie. And that leaves... That's, that's, that's it. That's the entire draft class. So those are the guys that I think lose their jobs. Question from Travis. Do you think Rodgers intentionally didn't wave off the field goal unit out of spite? Or do you think there's an issue between Rodgers and LaFleur, which maybe Rodgers alluded to when Brady was saying he'll be able to go for it in the golfing interview? He says, I think 90% of NFL quarterbacks are waving off the field goal unit in that situation with a trip to the field to the Super Bowl on the line and Tom Brady on the other side. Could be wrong, but I just don't see how Rodgers doesn't have the drive to say screw it with a Super Bowl trip on the line. Um, maybe part of his issues with the team is his freedom at the line with LaFleur. I know he said he loves the coaches, but when I heard Rodgers say that he doesn't have the option to go for it in the golfing interview when Brady was poking fun at him, it made me wonder. All right, well, that's a complicated question to unpack. So the 
what we're talking about here, obviously, is the end of the NFC Championship game. It's fourth down. The field goal unit comes on, and we know that Rodgers thought that he was in four-down territory. So the question is, do we think out of spite, basically saying, you know what? The right decision is for me to go for it. If you kick the field goal, we're going to lose, but you deserve to lose for not trusting me. Therefore, I'm going to let you kick the field goal. Did he, out of spite, not wave off the field goal unit? In other words, contradict what the head coach said? No, I don't think that was out of spite. I think that is just going along with what your head coach is saying to do. The head coach says we're kicking a field goal here. The quarterback does not sabotage that situation. Um, 90% of quarterbacks are waving off the field goal unit in that situation. I don't know about that. Look, it was the right call. Kicking the field goal was absolutely the right call. Going for it on fourth down is not the right call in that situation. Even if you get it, you have to also get the two-point conversion to tie the game. LaFleur does not like overtime. He likes winning games in regulation, which is the right call. I mean, how much time do NFL fans on social media spend complaining about overtime rules, specifically uh, Chiefs fans whining about the 2018 season when the Patriots won the coin toss and they scored a touchdown. The Chiefs never had a chance to match it. Look, you got two options here. Option one is you say, I don't trust an offense that just threw three incompletions to get a touchdown and a two-point conversion and the defense to hold the Buccaneers off, and a coin toss. I would rather trust Mason Crosby's leg plus the defense plus the offense getting a fresh opportunity that's not just one down. You understand where I'm going with this? You needed the field goal anyways. Take the field goal now since it's fourth down and the offense has looked like hot garbage. Because you need the field goal anyways. So if you need a touchdown and a field goal and it's fourth down and the offense looks awful, take the field goal now. You know you can trust Mason Crosby. Literally the only difference is that on your second possession, you're hoping that the offense is going to get back down into um, touchdown territory again. Either way, you still need to rely on the defense to take the ball away from the Buccaneers or at least not let them score and send it to overtime after trusting that the Packers offense, which never ever scores uh, two point conversions, trusting that they're going to get a two point conversion. Do I think it was out of spite? No, I think that he was doing the right thing. I think he was obeying his head coach going along with what the team had decided to do, which is his job. Maybe part of his issues with the team is his freedom at the line of scrimmage. Um, if that is really the issue, then I really do not agree with him at all. He had years and years of complete freedom. I believe in 2018, he was changing over the half of the calls at the line of scrimmage that Mike McCarthy was sending in. You know, we, we give McCarthy a lot of crap for how bad the offense looked. That wasn't even his offense. That was Aaron Rodgers' offense. How do we know? Because... Rodgers was calling more than half the plays that the offense was running. No, I don't think that Rodgers needs more freedom. I don't think that he needs more uh, more freedom at the line of scrimmage. He already has plenty of freedom at the line of scrimmage. He, he changed plenty of LaFleur's calls last year. 
No, I don't think that Rogers should be like the diet GM, the assistant GM, and get to uh, weigh in on guys like Martellus Bennett and Jimmy Graham and Jake Kumaro that we should be holding on to. No, you do that kind of thing just to pad his ego, not because it makes the team any better. It does not make the team better. Aaron Rodgers' decisions do not make the team better. So are those his issues with the team? Yeah, maybe. If so, he's wrong, and I don't agree with him. So probably not the fun answer you're hoping for, but that is my answer. Okay, we do need to run a second ad break here, so I'll be right back. Uh, here's a fun one. Jerry Holmes wants to know, so LaFleur came through Sean McVay's system and is supposedly uh, McVay is supposedly his mentor or a strong influence, but are there big differences between the offensive schemes of each team now? Has LaFleur branched into something of his own? Yes, definitely. You got to remember, too, that both McVay and LaFleur are actually disciples of Mike Shanahan. So LaFleur... Kyle Shanahan and Sean McVay and some other guys, but those are kind of the big three. Their offenses are all different flavors of the same concept. In 2020, the Green Bay Packers rushed 44.7% of the time. The Rams rushed 43.5% of the time. The 49ers in 2020 only rushed 41.8% of the time. Now, those maybe don't sound like big differences, but you got to look at the 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 team that rushed the most. The most was the Ravens. They rushed fifty five point nine percent of the time. The team that rushed the least was the Jaguars at thirty three point eight. So, from forty four point seven with which the Packers ran to where did San Francisco go to forty one point eight is actually a bigger difference than it sounds. That doesn't give us a ton of. Uh, context here. So let's look at offensive personnel grouping. So let's start with Green Bay. They spent in 2020, is this 2020? Yeah, 2020, they uh, 55% of their uh, snaps were in 11 personnel. In other words, one running back, one tight end, three wide receivers. We'll compare that before we look at the other ones. We'll compare it. The Rams played 11 personnel 65% of the time. And the 49ers were on the other end of the spectrum with a mere 44% in 11 personnel. Now, every offense in the NFL calls more 11 personnel than any other grouping. However, there are only two teams that are less than 40% 11 personnel. One is the Tennessee Titans at 38%. Their second highest would be 12 personnel, which is one running back, two tight ends, and two wide receivers. And I think a big part of that has to do with the Titans don't have really good wide receivers, and they do have some really good tight ends. But they still run 11 personnel more than they run 12 personnel. And then the other team is the Vikings. They only ran 29%, so under 30%. Uh, in 11 personnel, the second highest for them was 21 personnel, two running backs, one tight end with just two wide receivers, which makes sense because you have historically had a bunch of really great running backs in Minnesota and pretty much just two good wide receivers. Now they're like two of the best wide receivers in the game, but still only two of them. So it just makes sense that you would be playing 
a lot of these two wide receiver sets. Going back to the teams we're discussing, though, Green Bay runs 24% of their snaps in 12 personnel. So two tight ends, one wide receiver, two, sorry, two tight ends, two wide receivers, one running back. The Rams are very similar at 29%. And the 49ers, I think I already read this one off, but we'll hit it again. Oh, no, I didn't. Uh, Only 12%. So... That's an interesting one because even though they have George Kittle, uh, they don't run a lot of 12 personnel. So they basically have just one tight end they really like and don't tend to use uh, their other tight end very much. The 49ers second highest set is 21 personnel. So that's two running backs, which makes sense. If you look at their roster, they consistently every year have a stable of like four or five really dominant running backs and they just pound the rock like crazy having two running backs out there a lot of the time makes a ton of sense and again that's a team that just typically does not have great wide receivers the rams ran zero plays last year in 21 personnel compare that to 33 percent of san francisco so they were never using two running backs one tight end and two wide receivers they did run just three snaps of 22 personnel, which is two running backs, two tight ends, and one wide receiver. My guess, I'm not looking at that, but my guess, since it's just three, and it's kind of a wonky personnel grouping, especially considering the types of players that LA has, I mean, I guess that those were kind of some really unique situations. They had negative one yards per carry. All three of those plays were runs. These might be like victory formations. It's possible. I'm not sure. I don't care enough about the Rams to go try and figure out where I would find the answer to that question. Actually, this is some fascinating information here about Green Bay. So when they are in 11 personnel, they run 36% of the time, and they are successful 60% of the time that they run it. They pass, obviously, 64% of the time when they are in 11 personnel. When they are in 12 personnel, one running back, two tight ends, two wide receivers, that run rate jumps up to 54%, but the successful run percentage dips down from 68% down to 55%. Their successful pass percentage in 12 personnel is 68%, which is pretty good. That's higher than their successful pass percentage in 11 personnel. I don't know why you are seeing that. You would expect them to be better at passing in 11 personnel and better at running in 12 personnel. It's the exact opposite. My guess is that that would have to have something to do with the tight ends and the fact that Robert Tunyon was kind of, uh, at least some weeks, he was kind of wide receiver number two. So if you got two tight ends out there, one of them's going to be Tunyon, the other's probably Mercedes Lewis. And I think on those snaps where Mercedes is not playing, you or rather, rather where Mercedes is playing and it's 11 personnel with only one tight end. Let me rephrase that in a not stupid way. I think that those situations where it's 11 personnel, so you only have one tight end, is more likely going to be Mercedes than Tunyon because of Mercedes' blocking ability. All right? We on the same page now? Sound less stupid? All right, moving on to 21 personnel. So this is two running backs, one wide receiver. Most of the year, I think this would have been Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams. Uh, A.J. Dillon just did not get many snaps last year. 
When they have two running backs on the field, they run 45% of the time. That is higher than the 36% that you have in 11 personnel, but lower than the 12 personnel. So when there's two running backs on the field, you're less likely to see the Packers run than when there's one running back and two tight ends. Interesting. The successful run percentage is comparable to 12 personnel, which was 55%, but it dips down just slightly to 51%. The successful pass percentage is one percentage higher than 11 personnel. Now, you also have just 20 snaps that were taken last year in 22 personnel, two tight ends and two tight uh, running backs with one wide receiver. They ran the ball 45% of the time. Interestingly, they had... Not much success. Only 22% of the time were they successful running the ball, which is crazy because you have two running backs and two tight ends on the field. You expect them to run the ball very well. But our wide receivers are really good blockers. Their pass rate was 55% and the successful pass percentage was 64, which is the second highest behind just 12 personnel. So... Um, every other position grouping, they had five or fewer snaps all year, so they don't really matter. But it is interesting to see how successful they are in 12 personnel. I'd like to see them continue that. It it makes sense because the offense is a similar one to what Minnesota runs, and Minnesota runs um, just an absurd amount of 12 personnel and 21 personnel. I just find it interesting we don't see that same correlation with the 21 personnel being really successful that Minnesota has. And then since you were asking specifically about the Rams, remember they ran no 21 personnel at all. Uh, they ran just three snaps of 22. So almost all of their snaps were in 11 personnel or 12 personnel. When they are in 11 personnel, they run only 33% of the time. That is way lower than the Packers. When they are in 12 personnel, they run 63% of the time, which is much higher than the Packers. However, worth noting, in both of those situations, their successful run percentage is worse than the Packers. Actually, that's not true. The Packers in 11 personnel, yes, it is true. Yeah, in both of those their successful run percentage is lower than the Packers. So the Packers are better, much better at running the ball than the Rams are. And that's something we didn't get from the first numbers I was throwing out about how often they rush versus pass, because what we didn't get in that context is how often they were successful at running. The Rams, when they're in, when they show up in 12 personnel, in other words, when they throw another tight end on the field, they're, the chances that they are going to pass drop down to 37% versus normally they're at 67% when it's in 11 personnel. So um, another big difference with the Rams is that the Rams do not lean so heavily on pre-snap motion. That is something that LaFleur leans into very heavily. Uh, Kyle Shanahan also does. Rams tend not to do that much. Um, however, if you're wondering who's the better play caller, uh, I've talked to two different coaches who watched some LA film with me and both were just absolutely in awe of McVay's offensive play calling and think that his system is slightly more sophisticated than LaFleur's. So there you go. There's a bit of context. I do have to wrap it up and get out of here. 
Uh, tomorrow is Wednesday for me, so that is your today. Today, for you, can you please go to the Packernet Podcast Facebook group, and there is a post at the top there asking for some questions to ask Ryan. Ryan is going to come back on the show. He is not going to be hosting the show like he normally does. I'm still going to host it. I'm going to interview Ryan for a special mid-move episode. Check in on how life's going with him. He can, in fact, confirm that I have not murdered him. He's not tied up in my closet anywhere. Um, yeah, maybe you guys can uh, work out some sort of secret code with him where he drops a, a key phrase to let you know whether or not he's uh, being held against his will. I don't know. That's between you and Ryan. But head over to the Facebook group. Drop some questions in there. Questions about life, football, nonsense, uh, music, whatever. Get your questions in there. We're going to have a lot, of, a lot of fun. That episode is going to be published on Thursday morning, but it will be recorded Wednesday night. So if you are listening to this on Wednesday, get your questions in. If you are listening to this episode late and it's already past Wednesday night, then don't bother. Thank you all so much for listening. I will see you here tomorrow. Have a good one. Bye-bye.